Hello and welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 155. I am your host, Noah Rochetta. Today I'm going to talk about a story called The First Meditation. As always, keep in mind you don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to simply be a better whatever you already are. If you're interested in learning more about Buddhism, check out my book, No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners, available on Amazon, or you can listen to the first five episodes of this podcast. And you can find those first five episodes uh, easily by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking on the Start Here link. If you're looking for a community to practice with and to interact with, consider becoming a patron by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking the link to join our community. So today's podcast episode, it's been a little while since I've done a podcast episode. Um, These tend to be getting more and more spaced out, and I don't want to have such uh, big spaces between the episodes. My original intention was to do one of these every week, and I want to go back to that intention But I think the format's going to change a little bit. Rather than focusing on a longer topic, I'm just going to start doing shorter episodes, but more frequent. So uh, on our, we we have an online community for podcast supporters, and we do a live call every Sunday at noon Mountain Standard Time, and it's on Zoom. So it's a it's a video conference call. And the um, I think the benefit of that format is that it's a group discussion centered around a topic, and I'll present whatever the topic is for that week. But it it kind of acts as a as a neat way to set yourself up for the week to have your mind focused on a topic and practicing mindfulness throughout the week based on that topic that we had talked about. So I, I want to introduce the same format here. I'd like to do these weekly and introduce just little thoughts. It's a concept or an idea that you can carry with you throughout the week. And these would essentially uh, work as Dharma talks is what we call these in Buddhism. It's like a a short speech or a short uh, story with the intention of giving you something to think about and to carry with you as you go about your day-to-day lives. And that's been one aspect of, of Buddhism Buddhist practice that really speaks to me is taking these concepts and applying them to the everyday uh, average person, someone like me who lives in a home and carries roles like parent, spouse, sibling, uh, child, and taking these concepts into our normal day-to-day lives where we have jobs and we interact with other people. Sometimes it's easy to uh, think of these Buddhist concepts and ideas as big esoteric ideas that somebody sitting in a cave in the Himalayas, you know, can wrap their head around it. But for us everyday people living everyday lives, uh, how can these be beneficial? And that's what I'm really trying to do is extract these things and say, well, here's how it works in a day-to-day life for an average person, because that's who I am. (laughs) So that's what I want to start doing. So today's episode, I want to talk about a story uh, that's commonly referred to in Buddhism as the the story of the first meditation. This is the first meditation of uh, the Buddha. So the way this this story goes, and you can find this in uh, a lot of different sources, but um, one book where uh, I've read it and I, I like the interpretation is in Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Old Path, White Clouds. 
So anyway, the story goes like this. When the Buddha was about nine years old, um, he wasn't known as the Buddha at that time. Remember, that's just a, a title or a, uh, that was given to him, but it's not his name. His name is Siddhartha. So Siddhartha, the nine-year-old, uh, was out with his family, and the family, his dad was a king, King Sudodana, and the king and the royal family were all gathered for a ceremony of the first plowing of the season. And as they're all gathered, Siddhartha notices that the, the gentleman who's working with the water buffalo uh, is working really hard in the midday sun. The, the man was hot and he was sweaty, and the water buffalo was also tired and working hard because it's pulling the plow through the earth. So he notices this, and then he looks down and he notices that as the earth is being churned from the plow, uh, it's turning over and worms that were underground are now being exposed to the surface of the ground. And there were birds hovering by, small birds that were watching all this and insects, and they would swoop down and, and get the worms. Um, so young Siddhartha is noticing all this. He notices that uh, as these little birds are going down and swooping and getting the worms out of the blue, a hawk comes and takes out one of the small birds and flies off with it. And it was in this moment that Siddhartha recognized that each of them, the man working with the water buffalo, the water buffalo, the worms, the small birds, the hawks, the insects, they were all tied to the conditions of their specific lives. A worm was tied to the condition that it is a food source for birds. And without any effort on its part, it could suddenly be exposed to the birds because uh, a water buffalo was pulling a plow through the field. And the water buffalo couldn't help but uh, pull in the plow because the human that was controlling it was having it do so. And uh, and so on, right? The, the small birds are of the nature of eating uh, eating worms. And they are also of the nature of sometimes being the food for larger birds like hawks. And Siddhartha observed that the conditions were different for all of them and that they're different for everyone. Some animals enjoyed a greater degree of freedom and safety. For example, the, the peacocks in the royal gardens, you know, led a better, what seemed like a better existence than that of the water buffalo that was forced to pull the plow. And he noticed that it seemed to be the same with people. And I think perhaps the thing he noticed most was that all living things, all living creatures, were wanted to avoid suffering. And I think that sets him up for this understanding that later in his life, he was also going to be searching for a path that would lead to avoiding suffering or eliminating suffering. Now, this story, I think, has a couple of layers to it where we can extract some, some neat little lessons out of it. And again, in the book that I'm reading, Old Path, White Clouds by Thich Nhat Hanh, this story, when it's mentioned, it, it was preceded by another story where young Siddhartha was questioning uh, the caste system and why it was that at the time, uh, the, Veda, the, the Vedic scriptures could only be read by the Brahmins, uh, the, the specific caste system assigned to spiritual tasks. And he wondered, why, why can't I read them? Or why can't uh, my father or my mother read them? Why does it have to be someone from that caste system? I think he questioned that very early on. And that becomes a, a big part of his perspective later uh, as, as, the, as Buddhism is developed. But anyway, um, 
so Siddhartha notices, has this experience with the worms and the birds, and then uh, later tells his mom, uh, reciting the scriptures does nothing to help the worms and the birds. And I remember in, when I read that in the book, that stuck, stuck out to me because I, I believe this understanding that he had would evolve to shape one of the core Buddhist concepts, which is that intellectual understanding of things will never compare to experiential understanding of things. And I think he noticed, here I can I can recite all the scriptures and do all the um, conceptualizing that I want of things, but that does nothing to change the day-to-day reality of what it is to be a bird and what it is to be a worm. And you know, all the conditions that they are subject to because they are a worm or because they are a bird or because you're a human. And I think this is kind of where I wanted to steer the thought for today's podcast episode, which is that we are all subject to our own conditions as well. For example, I can't help but to think the way that I think. I understand what it is. It's an experiential understanding that I have of what it is to be a male what it is to be a father, what it is to be an American citizen who speaks English, um, to be a Mexican citizen who speaks Spanish. Uh, These are aspects of my life that I understand from an experiential standpoint, meaning I've experienced this, and, and that's why I understand it the way that I do, but it's not just an intellectual understanding like I might have if I try to imagine what it would be like to be a, a Syrian refugee, or to be um, anything that I'm not, right? I could try to wrap my head around it, but that will never be the same as being that thing. And that's something that I think gets carried on in Buddhist concepts and teachings down the road, which is the importance of the experiential nature of understanding um, these things, specifically uh, uh, meditation, right? It's a tool that you can wrap your head around why meditation might be beneficial, but that will never uh, that will never replace the experiential understanding of meditating and then understanding why it's beneficial because you've experienced it. So anyway, um, when I think about this and I recognize that I am subject to the conditions which I have inherited, whether they be societal norms or family norms or just the time and place where I live, it reminds me of two things, right? It reminds me, one, I'm like the blind man describing the elephant of life or the elephant of reality. And only from the perspective that I have, um, I can only understand it from the perspective that I have, and that perspective will always be an incomplete perspective, So it makes me value and cherish the other perspectives greatly, especially those that are different from mine, because they may may be describing this, um, the, the elephant of reality from a position that I don't see, that I don't understand and that I don't, um, the, where I'm not standing, you know, uh, and that, that, so that's one of the two takeaways for me. It makes me value other people's input and not want to approach life thinking, well, if it's the way I think, it must be right. Everyone else must be wrong. No, I recognize my way as my way, but my way doesn't have to be your way. Your way is your way, and I want to understand your way. And it also makes it less likely for me to want to sell my perspective Uh, my only intent would be to help you understand why I have that perspective, not to convince you that that perspective is right, because it's not. It's incomplete, 
and I can't help but to see things the way that I do, but that doesn't mean that that's the only way to see things. <laughs> so that's the first one. And the second one is it makes me grateful to experience new things. You know, it, it used to be that I, like a lot of us, right, we, we want more of the pleasant experiences and less of the unpleasant experiences. And when something happens that's pleasant, it's like, yes, I like that, I, uh, and, and I want more of that. And when something unpleasant happens, it's like, I don't ever want to feel that again. That's the normal paradigm that I think a lot of us have. And the more time I've spent studying these ideas and concepts from Buddhism, the more I've found myself entertaining the idea that I am open to experiencing everything that life may throw my way. And when it does, as unpleasant as it may be, there's a part of me that feels grateful to say, ah, now I know what this is like. And I've experienced this with big, strong emotions, uh, betrayal, uh, the loss of a friend. You know, I've recently lost friend. I've lost my father. And as painful and difficult as those experiences were and are, a part of me feels grateful to know, I know what it's like now to lose my dad. Um, that will in some ways uh, make me more compassionate to other people when they lose a parent or to someone who loses a friend, because now I know what that's like too. Or when you've been uh, gone through a betrayal, uh, well, now I know what that's like too. And, and there's that part of me that feels gratitude for life giving me an experiential understanding of something that I would have never understood had I not gone through it. I hope that makes sense. And it's not to say, I hope that these things happen to me. It's not that. It's that if they do, I'm grateful that now I know what that's like. And I thought about this with other big ones, right? Like, what would it feel like to lose a child? Well, that would be extremely difficult. And I certainly hope I don't ever have to experience that. But I know some people do. And I can have an intellectual understanding of what that might feel like, but it's not an experiential understanding. And if I ever did have an experiential understanding, as painful as it would be, I think a part of me would feel gratitude that now I can fully feel compassion for the others who are have also experienced that or are or will be experiencing that. Does that make sense? So those are the two big takeaways for me from this one story of the first meditation. Um, and again, take these ideas just as something that you can carry with you throughout the week and see if it affects the relationship you have with your thoughts, feelings, emotions, and the circumstances or conditions that are unique to you. Next time you experience a flat tire when you didn't want one, you may remember this and say, ah, well, now I know what that feels like. Or when you lose a job or not just unpleasant things, but the pleasant ones as well. If you happen to buy a lottery ticket and win, you're like, okay, well, now I know what that's like. Or when you find someone that you love or all the different things that it can be, right? Finding a new dish at a restaurant that you're like, wow, now I know what it tastes like to, you know, to have this meal. Um, that's, one of the fun little ways to view this as a game, I think, where it changes the relationship, for me at least, that I have with my pleasant and unpleasant experiences as they unfold. Because uh, it's fascinating to me to think that I'm going through life experiencing conditions that are unique to me, and I get to experience them. Some will be pleasant, some will be unpleasant, some are going to hurt, some are going to be great, 
um, and I'm open to all of them. Uh, and that was very helpful for me recently, again, with losing my dad and, and having that mindset rather than one of aversion like we typically have where we just at all costs want to avoid feeling hurt or feeling sad or feeling down, you know. Um, why not embrace that and say, oh, wow, I get to feel this now and really feel it and not push it away, but allow it to just become a part of us. The hurt and the pain and the sorrow um, is just as unique uh, of an experience as the the joy and the contentment of positive experiences, or happy ones. So that's the idea I wanted to convey in today's podcast episode. As I said, I'm going to try to keep these more frequent um, and perhaps a little shorter than before. But for today, that's all I have to share with you. And I look forward to sharing more thoughts in another future episode. Thank you for listening. Until next time.